So you two uh, take up dinosaurs. He spared no expense. He said it was completely useless. What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on your journey and listen to rearview movies while we look at old films with new eyes. My name is Scotty Williams, and as always, it is my great joy to talk about movies with my gorgeous, talented, amazing, very attractive wife, Heather, and the also amazing, also gorgeous, maybe slightly less attractive Trevor Kirkendall. How are you all doing today? I'm doing really well. God. (laughs) What an intro. I'm good, sir. How are you? Oh, man. Too blessed to be stressed, right? Back in school, doing all that good stuff. You know, we just had some really cool movies came out. It was a great weekend in the last couple months for movies, right? It was. Yeah. It's been a while since we've seen uh, the box office alive as it has been this previous month. Thanks to two movies that I would say could not be more opposite of each other, if we're being frank. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, we're talking about the global phenomenon of Barbenheimer. So, <laughs> of, of which, uh, of which Scotty and I saw half of that. The the latter half um, did not uh, did not make it to the the pink draped theater, but we did go <laughs> see the the three hour epic that was Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And boy, was it amazing! Just as everybody says. Yes, uh, complete masterclass, very well done. And uh, to to pitch it for a second, if you're going to watch a movie like that, a Christopher Nolan masterpiece like that, you really have to see it in IMAX because that's really the vision he has when he shoots these movies, right? Right, yeah. My only disappointment was uh, they they don't have any of those 70 millimeter IMAX cameras around here, so we weren't able to see it. So we had to settle for digital IMAX. <laughs> very very connoisseur even a touch over my head i was gonna be like yeah yeah it was imax you know but nah no yeah. one will put an imax no one will put an imax camera on anything right uh pretty much yeah so and hopefully they'll be at a point one day where they're not quite as loud and then he won't have to feel like his movies are drowned in music because that seems to be his mo Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, what did he say what did that guy say I, I didn't make that out it's like i don't need to watch a movie with subtitles but when i watch a nolan movie it's kind of like i kind of need it so That's, yeah well and and to clarify the record as well we want to see barbie we just the time just has not worked out to do it uh you know two adults busy schedules kids all that stuff you know plus it's, i'm sure the wife might like to see it at some point too yeah i think i do want to check it out that one's going to come down to um watching it on tv for me probably <laughs> so that's all right though that's okay. it's too too much pink for you right Jeff? yeah a little eh, yeah i mean if people could see the 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 screen recording they would see that i'm always in a black shirt so i would be that guy in the theater <laughs> a complete lack of color Whereas for Oppenheimer, we were enjoying, me and him pointed out a couple of times we were watching it, how many folks showed up in costume for Oppenheimer. Even though I would tend to guess it's going to be way harder to get a costume for Oppenheimer than it would be for Barbie. Yeah. I mean, these guys rolled up in 1940s style suits and they had the little, the brimmed hat on and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. There were at least, at least two people in that sold out IMAX theater that, uh, that showed up like that. Yeah. The hats were easily my favorite touch. Although, (laughs) although to be fair, they may have just been fashion statements, you know, for the time, but yeah, it was, it was pretty great. And, um, a lot of people are already saying best picture, but I have to, I want to caution everyone. Let's pump the brakes. It's only 
well, July when it came out, and there's mm-hmm. still a whole season of stuff to to come after that, including one movie which everybody has, well, everybody, critics, people that matter, <laughs> have already seen, and that's the Scorsese movie that comes out in October, and mm-hmm. people were saying that that is pretty mesmerizing. So right mm-hmm. now it seems like, you know, I'm always paying attention to the award stuff because I'm kind of a geek. But yeah, it seems like those two movies are kind of running neck and neck right now. So we'll see what what happens. And plus, there might be something that kind of comes out of nowhere that uh-huh. we're not even thinking about right now. Well, so. you, you you made it through July. You've made it through the, the, the blockbuster summer phase of things. And there's still, like you said, there's still going to be great movies. You still have several more months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the during uh, September, you have the big fall festivals that start to happen in the Venice Toronto, Telluride, New York, and that's where everybody really shows off all their their Oscar frontrunner stuff. So um, we'll see a lot of reward stuff coming in the next couple months, or we'll get to hear about it. And then as the stuff slowly rolls out in the theaters over Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays, that's when everything happens. Everyone asks why all the Oscar movies come out at the end of the year. It's because voters have a really short memory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and very yes. rarely do movies win this thing that come out in the early part of the year last year an exception everything everywhere all at once opened in april um and that ended up winning best picture uh famously the silence of the lambs wins best picture opening on um valentine's day weekend of 1991 what a valentine's day movie that was yeah yeah i think that one probably even opened before the oscar ceremony for the 1990 movies even happened so by the time that ceremony was broadcast we'd already seen the movie that was going to win best picture for next year so well just to have a little fun then i've got a list right here of some of the upcoming films for the rest of the year oh, got some fun. some films that are coming out uh coming up so starting in august get the button ready <laughs> uh some of these i'm just going to skip because as much as i would love to hear trevor come up with a word for the meg to the trench i'm not sure uh i would i would enjoy uh yeah. last last voyage of the demeter I'm actually interested in that one um, just because it's a, an entire movie based on the prologue of Dracula. Yes. Heather is shaking her head, so I'm pretty sure I know I'm, what. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm lost. I don't know what you're talking about. She's Googling ways to say no creatively right now. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, then August 18th, which is a, a red letter day for the, for the two of us, of course, their anniversary. So I'm going to take her to see Blue Beetle, the, the DC release. Oh, yeah, course. Blue Beetle. Yeah. Okay. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah, because nothing says romance like a DC movie. Well, not only that, but a DC movie that is that is basically the second to last movie of a zombie deal with uh, with James Gunn getting ready to take mm-hmm. over. But I, I'm going to say this, Jolo Maraduena, I never say his name right. He was in Cobra Kai. Excellent. I really would love to see him have a good movie here. But last, Trevor, do you tell me that the returns are not looking promising? I saw, uh, I saw 30 million in its first weekend. So for, a, not- for a like multi hundred for a whole to hundred plus million dollar movie, right? Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. No bueno. So then Gran Turismo comes out August 25th. I don't know what to think of that one. I mean, it could be good, mm-hmm. but it also could be completely crap. Yes. Uh, September, we've got the Equalizer 3 and my big fat Greek wedding 3. Why? Why make another one? Because money. Heather, yeah, because money. I'm just I'm I'm still sour that they did not come up with the Equalizer three, the sequelizer. The se- that would have been a perfect name for the record. Yeah. And then they could have done a prequelizer even before that. Oh yep. 
so honey, I'll make a deal with you. September 8th, I will take you to see my big fat Greek wedding three, but you have to agree to come with me to the September 22nd release of the Expendables four. <laughs> no. <laughs> skip, Look, two, yeah. skip, skip ahead. Go and go into October. September always sucks. So October, the so there's a couple of these from October that mean you saw trailers for at Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them being the new Exorcist film, uh, The Exorcist Believer. Yeah, uh, the Exorcist film that is hotly anticipated when we roll Why? that one. So Why are they making another one of those? Because money, honey. Because money. Oh. <laughs> it looks like crap too. It just looks terrible. I, you know, you take a film. I think it's really hard to take a movie that's that iconic for, for a particular time reasons, and then just try to recreate it with the way we make movies today. I'm just not so sure that's going to work. Nope. Uh, Killers of the flower moon, the Scorsese yep. film you previously mentioned, October yeah. 20th, three, um, three and a half hour epic. That's apparently just absolutely phenomenal. It, it screened a can out of competition earlier this year and it wowed the whole place everything four star reviews across the board five star reviews across the board from everybody they called it DiCaprio's best performance ever they said uh the the young lady that's in there I can't remember her name Lily something or I can't remember her name but she's one of the main roles and they said she's phenomenal so De Niro De Niro and DiCaprio's first movie together in like 30 years Scorsese's first movie with both of them together so that's going to be I don't know and it's a great story too um really 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 great story so I can't wait to see that the last weekend of October for Halloween you've got Saw another Saw movie because money um yes. yeah uh, five nights at Freddy's um I'm not going to lie moderately moderately interesting uh, for those who mm-hmm. don't know uh that is based on the phone game that is essentially a jump scare machine for kids Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you pretend you're working at something and the whole point of it is that you're going to get jump scared by some creature. But I mean, hey, video game movies can be interesting. Uh, November, we have the Marvels coming out. Another another Marvel film. Nope. Keep going. <laughs> and then uh, November 17th, Trolls Band Together and The Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Double nope. Skip. Move on. <laughs> Well, I guess I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So November 22nd, uh, we're, we may have to make an appointment to see Ridley Scott returning to historical epics, directing yes. Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon. Some of those pictures, like some of those stills they've taken dead freaking ringer. Yeah. And then December, we have Timothy Chalamet taking his turn in Gene Wilder's place as Wonka. Yeah. That one doesn't look oh, too bad, actually. I didn't know they were making another one of those. It's, it's supposed like a, to be a, it's like a prequel. It's like a prequel. It's like how Willy Wonka started the chocolate factory. Oh, that could actually be interesting. I mean, it looks, it looks really good. Like, okay. He looks like he's playing more to the Gene Wilder type than to the, to the Johnny Depp type. So, Oh, that's, that's good news. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, which is an interesting uh, way to tackle the role, but you know, it's uh, it's a good story to tell. And then the last one I'll point out, December 20th, we're going to close out the DC pre-James Gunn universe with Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, which is going to be their last chance to make any money before. Basically, the, the DC universe is going to go into sleep for a little bit because if I read it right, I think they're taking most of next year off from movies and they're not debuting their first film in his universe until later in 2025. Pass. Couldn't care less. <laughs> You forgot one that's going to creep up on the best picture list that comes out around Christmas. They, we have a new adaptation of The Color Purple coming out. I saw that Christmas release. Uh, so yeah. basically, remake of the movie, uh, new take on the so, movie, new take. Uh, so the the 
1985 movie by Steven Spielberg was the adaptation of the Alice Walker book. Mm-hmm. And then they readapted that um, probably 10 or 15 years ago as a Broadway musical. And so this movie is the adaptation of the Broadway musical. Huh. So it's going to have Fantasia is is the lead role, the Whoopi Goldberg role from the 85 movie. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Haley Berry is in it. So mm-hmm. nice. another musical role for her after Little Mermaid this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep your eye out for that one because they, you know, if a musical is done right, those are normally really captivating, especially for Oscar voters. In 85, Color Purple was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Steven Spielberg won the Directors Guild Award, his first for that movie should have been a good night for them. They were shut out over 10. So wow. really, really bad night. So now you're going to have in 2023, you're going to have Spielberg who's producing it along with Oprah and Quincy Jones going around Hollywood saying, Hey, you need to write the wrong here. Okay. You shut us, <laughs> you shut us out in 85. Spielberg's on a revenge again. tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now he's not directing it; he's just producing it. Right, right, who's right. Directing it, but he'll still be a, a a big part of that campaign, and it is a campaign. I mean, it's they never vote for the best one; they vote for the best campaign. So, right, right. Those are you could have a you could have a thousand uh, separate spinoff episodes talking mm-hmm. about this movie versus this movie, and it's it's basic merit, yeah. right? And it's a great story, first of all. So, and it was a I never saw the musical on stage, but it was Tony winning. Mm-hmm. Um, you have fantasia who's excellent i mean it's a loaded cast like i said i don't remember who's all who all is in it but look up the cast it's a who's who of really good singers so Mm -hmm. and nobody's seen it nobody's seen it yet so nobody has any idea if it's going to be any good but it's already if i said oppenheimer and flower moon were running neck and neck on best picture right now color purple's right behind it and nobody's seen it everyone's just assuming it's going to be great and Mm -hmm. it looks great they have a trailer for it unless they bump it to 24 because of the strike, which is still a possibility. Right. Which is also looming large over, over things continuing. So mm-hmm. yeah, looking at this cast right here uh, again, Trevor said, look it up. I'm looking it up. Uh, there's Miss Bailey. There is Fantasia. There's Danielle Brooks uh, being, uh, playing Sophia. Mm. Coleman Domingo is going to play Mr. Uh, yep. Taraji P. Henson. I always enjoy her. As, uh, is that Suge Avery? Shug, Shug, uh, yeah. Corey Hawkins. Sierra mm-hmm. is in this. Uh, Sierra. Good old uh, one-two-step Sierra. Uh, Felicia Pearl Mapazi and Anjanu Ellis. Apologies to anyone whose name I am destroying. Anjanu Ellis Taylor, she was in she was in that King Richard last year with Will Smith or two years ago with Will Smith. Excellent. She was great in that. She'll be good in this. Ooh, Lou Gossett Jr. is in it. So uh, making an yep. appearance there from back in the day. And David Allen Greer as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not in with uh, the, the R&B crowd. So is it is it her or is it H-E-R? How do you say the name of that artist? Not I, I am unfortunately it's, not well connected to that. Spell either. it out. Do you spell it out? I don't know. She's already won an Oscar, too. Unfortunately, I'm not sure. Okay, yeah. See, I figured you would be, but okay. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, should be good uh, as long as it makes its release date, but we'll see. So, For the record, it's... don't Google how to pronounce her. Yeah. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> that was a mistake. Well, uh, I, I guess kind of speaking of Spielberg... And jumping into it, let's you know have the conversation about the masterpiece of a film that we get to talk about. I would love for our editor to pull back the clip of Trevor just absolutely losing his mind 
over the oh, over yeah. the, over Computron spitting out uh, spitting out the name of the movie. Uh, so Trevor, tell us what we're uh, what we're up against here. We're watching the greatest movie ever made, Jurassic Park. Amazing. I'm I'm only halfway kidding when I say it's the greatest movie ever made, but um, yeah. So let's talk Jurassic Park for for this month's episode. Uh, Jurassic Park was released. It's part of our 30 year. Uh, look back. So it was released June 11th, 1993. This movie is directed by the aforementioned Steven Spielberg um, and stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, Bob Peck, B.D. Wong, Joseph Mazzello, Ariana Richards, Samuel L. Jackson, and Wayne Knight. Tremendous cast. I would love to ask people like what they think this movie costs to make, right? (laughs) Yes. When you compare things today, because with the visual effects now, movies go over 200 million in no time. But this mm-hmm. one, this one was the advent of computer graphics. You know, mm-hmm. like they largely stayed away from computer graphics in this mm-hmm. one unless they needed it. Everything was done practically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the budget for this movie was a mere $63 million, which in 30 years ago was probably a lot. But today it's like they just give that money away if they want to make anything. Right. Uh, on its opening weekend, it grossed $50.1 million. That had never, ever been seen before. That was the biggest opening weekend ever at the time and it went on to gross 400 million dollars which i believe at the time made it actually i don't know if it ever if it ended up being the highest grossing movie of all time or if it still fell behind et i think it still fell behind et a little bit well it certainly cracked the top top five i would say yeah it was it was one or two or three it was right up there worldwide gross ended up going to 1.04 billion dollars that's probably after all the subsequent re-releases and everything too but right. you know, it, it was in the theaters for a long time ended up being nominated for 3 oscars at the end of the year and it won all 3 of them uh best sound best sound effects editing and best visual effects which you'd expect rotten tomatoes audience seems to agree here 91 scores for both of them the consensus is that uh, Jurassic Park is a spectacle of special effects and lifelike animatronics with some of Spielberg's best sequences of sustained awe and sheer terror since Jaws. That's quite the statement there. Well, um, I, for sheer terror, you have to you have to agree with that because Heather and I, as we watched this film together, there were legitimate moments where where she did the teenage thing where she like leaned in and grabbed my arm and like, <laughs> you know, there, there were because there were a couple of parts. I mean, there are a couple of parts in that film that are legitimately terrifying. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess we can talk about the uh, the first time seeing well, when I first saw it for the very first time was the first day. And I'll probably gush more about this movie later on, but I don't need wikipedia or imdb or your show notes here to tell me this movie was released on june 11th 1993 that date is forever burned into my brain i had a feeling this movie <laughs> like i i know that date like my own birthday <laughs> um so yes i saw when, this when's your wedding anniversary april 21st <laughs> so i i good I man do, good uh, man <laughs> I do know that too. Um, My wife is out here trying to make guys sleep on the couch. That is not cool. That's not I'm, cool. I'm messing with you. <laughs> um, Our anniversary is coming up in three days, and you're going to do that? Very funny. <laughs> He's trying to say, "Hey, I I remember, so don't you know? <laughs> don't let me on the Subtle. couch." Subtly, subtly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but yeah, we we saw this on 
June 11th, 1993. I know exactly where I was that day. I know exactly what theater we were at in Illinois. The theater's not there anymore, but uh, saw it and we took my sister. I was 10. She was eight. She was scared out of her mind after this movie was done. Uh-huh. Um, slept in the parents' bed for uh, for like a week. But I, I, I just remember we were... After the movie was done, we had to make a quick stop at a grocery store, and like my sister's just clinging to my mom Aww. while me and while me and my dad are walking around the store, going, "Oh, that scene where that happened—that was so awesome." <laughs> <laughs> there were lots of scenes that, as a guy, you're sitting there going, "Oh yeah, right." Yeah. So when when was uh, y'all's first time seeing it? So I saw it. Uh, probably around the same time it came out as well. Uh, I do not have the date uh, etched into my brain as, as as Trevor does it, but it is a time I saw it as a kid, completely wowed by it. And uh, like everybody else, just completely entranced because the premise was so interesting, right? I mean, dinosaurs in a movie and they look really real and yeah, very, very, you know, draw a lot of tension for me. Heather, how about you? I was a kid when, you know, obviously we were all kids when this came out, but I watched this movie with my two older brothers and I was terrified, much like your sister. And my brothers thought it was hilarious and they were really, really mean to me afterwards for like the next (laughs) week and a half. It was terrible. Love it. I'm sorry, but I love it. What a what a perfect spectrum, right? Because Trevor is talking about this like a quintessential life experience. Heather's over here like, I needed therapy after it was over. And I'm in the middle like, yeah, you know, I saw it. It was good. <laughs> well, I think just to continue with the gushing for a minute, like, you know how much I'm, I, what, what what's even the right phrase in being into movies? You know how into movies I am? Yeah, like that was a whole different world before this movie. It was this movie that did it. Like this was if I can point to the calendar and say like when I became as fascinated as I was. And it started about 18 months before that when when Spielberg released Hook and we went and saw that in the theaters. That was December of 91. Um, We went and saw that in the theaters and I was pretty taken by that one. And um, just wanted to know all the secrets about, like, how did this idea about, like, Peter Pan growing up, how did that come from an idea to this gigantic spectacle that we just watched on the big screen? Mm-hmm. And so my dad kind of told me about certain little aspects of filmmaking. We'd found books in the library. I mean, I'm 988 in 1991, you mm-hmm. know, and go- going into going on nine and uh, okay, so it gets written. Then what? Then okay, your producer finances it. Then what? You know, like uh, who's the director? Oh, the director is the guy that really calls the shots. Okay, I got it. And, you know, and then I spent the next year counting down to this movie because <laughs> I got kind of into Spielberg did Hook. So what is he doing next? Holy crap, he's making dinosaurs. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, I spent that year and a half between Hook and this one kind of catching up as much as I could on all his old stuff. Mm. Became a huge fan there. I remember I really wanted to see Jaws. My mom was like, you're just a kid and it's rated R. You can't see it. I was (laughs) like, well... Touche. I guess I can't. I didn't know what touche. Never mind. I didn't say that, but you know. What I mean. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, yeah, good point. I guess I can't watch an R-rated movie if it is rated R. And then I remember seeing the box in the video store, and I looked at the back and at the very bottom corner it said PG. I took it to my mom. I was mom! like, <laughs> I can see it because it's PG. There's so, a gotcha moment. Yep. And uh, um, the days before your child can read. 
<laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, like, completely big, big moment when this happened. And my, mm-hmm. you know, it's stupid to say things are like movies are life changing moments or whatever. But uh, this one, this one was. So I got nothing but love for it. And I saw it seven times in the theater um, throughout 1993. Drug my grandma to it. It was great. <laughs> so, That's so cute. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that movies are life-changing. That's For some movies, that's kind of the point. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, for some movies, that's kind of the point. You look at you look at movies about real life events that give you new perspective on things. I, I when I taught history, you would be surprised how many times kids would come in interested in a topic because there had just been a movie made about it. Mm-hmm. After 300 was made, I answered a million questions about the Spartans mm-hmm. and the same thing. And, you know, so I'm, I'm sure Oppenheimer will garner the same amount of attention for the for the story of the bombing. And the story was pretty decently faithfully told. So that, nothing wrong at all with saying movies can be life changing. I think that that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the, in my opinion, I think that's kind of the point, because um, Heather, well, you can point you can probably point to a movie that did something for really big for you. Right. Um, not off the top of my head, but if I had some time to think about it, maybe. Legally Blonde. I love that movie. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> well, what's well, a what's a life-changing movie for you? Oh, Please. for me? Yeah, yeah, for you. Oh gosh. Um, you're going to laugh, but I I, no. I I back to the future 100%. Yeah, I mean all day long. All day long. I it's funny. I was doing an assignment at school. I had to uh, make a special lesson that we were doing in school and uh, they mixed up all the classes. So there were some kids who I had taught previously in this session, a bunch of kids I'd never met before. Part of the session involved sorting kids into groups. I named one of the groups back to the future. <laughs> and one of my kids walks right in, looks at the handout and goes, you made this, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> because I tell every kid that listens, I say, it's the best movie you ever made. You can disagree with me. No problem. You're welcome to be wrong about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah I, I am shameless a couple of my uh, seniors we have a really funny discussion about the movie too because obviously it's tough to pitch from a distance but now back to the future was seminal for me definitely all right so now that i had a minute to think i'm sorry were you you good okay it doesn't um, matter if he was done you're ready to go no. <laughs> okay so so well i had a minute to think about it right yeah um when i was a kid i posit and you guys can go ahead and laugh at me about this but i positively loved the movie space jam and i know that is really really silly and i wouldn't call it necessarily life-changing but i'm a huge michael jordan fan right i like always have been and i always watched the chicago bulls when i was a kid every time um i just loved that movie and being a kid and then seeing him go from the basketball court to the big screen was like one of the coolest things for me as a child. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can go ahead and laugh. No, no, I'm not going to laugh. <laughs> no, I'm just no, going to say I, that's the that's the 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 far superior of the two Space Jam movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. That is somehow the second time Trevor has rendered an opinion on the greatness of both of those two films. Hey, you know what? I, I, and I got nothing bad to say about Space Jam because if there's one thing I do think it does better than the most recent version, which I did take my daughter to see, I liked it. I thought it was good. The more the the older one was more, I think, family friendly, mm-hmm. and it was in general a more enjoyable movie because the plot wasn't that. There were places where the new Space Jam the plot was a little convoluted. Like, oh, uh, well, places? Uh, LeBron's you what places? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where the plot was just very hard to explain. Whereas I can explain Space Jam to you in two seconds: Michael Jordan versus aliens for the fate of the Looney Tunes. Done. That's mm-hmm. one sentence, there right? You but you can't do that with the new Space Jam. You you can't explain that film in one sentence. No. Um, so I I thought it was it, it tried to do a little too much 
to be better. Because honestly, it could have been LeBron James versus the aliens for the fate of the... I thought they should have leaned into the whole conversation, right? If you're going to have fun with it, have fun with it. We know everybody debates LeBron versus Jordan. Have fun with it in that film. Yeah. I, I would have written something completely like meta and fourth wall breaking, and I would have turned it into a piece of the debate, for goodness sakes. <laughs> well, you know, somebody probably wanted to do that, and it was probably shut down by a right. certain somebody. So I'm just saying there's some people out there that don't like to hear about those comparisons. <laughs> yep. And he starred in the first movie. That's for sure. <laughs> and he started no, the second movie too. If, if, if I'm saying it, to be honest, I think that probably they, the two of them probably laugh at that conversation. They probably love having that, having that uh, giggle with each other about they, you know, cause again, they all really care. They all have really good relations with each other for the most part. A lot of those historical players, a lot of those great historical players. Yes. LeBron belongs in the category of great historical players, but anyway, moving on. Uh, so speaking of opinions, of course, if we're going to talk about this film in context, we want to talk a little bit about Roger Ebert's opinion. So, uh, Heather, would you tell us what Mr. Ebert had to say about Jurassic Park and its rating? Absolutely. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it three stars. And he said, when young Steven Spielberg was first offered the screenplay for Jaws, he said he would direct the movie on one condition, that he didn't have to show the shark for the first hour. By slowly building the audience's apprehension, he felt the shark would be much more impressive when it finally arrived. He was right. I wish he had remembered that lesson when he was preparing Jurassic Park. His new thriller set in a remote island theme park where real dinosaurs have been grown from long dormant DNA molecules. The movie delivers all too well on its promise to show us dinosaurs. We see them early and often, and they are indeed a triumph of special effects artistry, but the movie is lacking other qualities that it needs even more, such as a sense of awe and wonderment and strong human story values. Okay, I'm going to strongly disagree with him on this one. <laughs> um, they are not shown early, and no. honestly, they're not shown often either. There's very few shots of dinosaurs in this movie. Nope. You, you kind of get the glimpse of it at the beginning during the little prologue at the beginning but then you don't see him again it's like probably i didn't i didn't track the time or whatever but the first one you really see is that brontosaurus mm -hmm. brachiosaurus whatever um sorry to any of the dinosaur fanatics out there i'm gonna get the dino names wrong um i don't think i don't think our one listener is a dinosaur fanatic so i hope not <laughs> No, we don't see them early and we don't see them often. Maybe we maybe that was the the thought back in the day, but now you watch these abomination of sequels that have fallen after this movie, the Jurassic World. Let's think about this for one minute here. Well, the first time we see a dinosaur in Jurassic Park, how does it happen? They come up in those jeeps, right? Mm -hmm. And they Sam Neill looks to his what left and he's like, Yeah, off screen. I can't off. see it. He stands up and he's just in complete awe. And then he grabs Laura Dern's head and turns it. And she just stands up too. And they're both completely awestruck. Mm -hmm. And it just builds and it holds. And then they this beautiful wide shot of of the dinosaur. Da, na, um, na, na, na. Yep. <laughs> and if and to get even more like ridiculously technical, this movie's aspect ratio is more boxy, mm -hmm. which gives you that sense of height rather than that rather than that long like right. landscape a very deliberate choice because they knew these things are going to be so big mm -hmm. they'd rather have a taller frame than a longer one mm -hmm. now let's look at jurassic world what's the first time we see the dinosaurs in jurassic world it's about five minutes in and it's just a bunch of raptors running through some forest yep and then they stop in front of chris pratt who can apparently hold his hands out and that's it yeah who, who is oh. like the who is a raptor whisperer now yeah 
also that film's aspect ratio is the wider aspect ratio it's not as tall so therefore you never get all the dinosaurs in the same frame from top Mm -hmm. to bottom they're always half of it okay that's showing it early and often Mm -hmm. okay it's almost like in what was that 2015 when that movie came out 2014 somewhere around there yeah and you watch this movie and the dinosaurs run on the screen and everyone in the audience is like oh cool there's some dinosaurs like who gives who cares? There they are. What? We've seen them. It's been, at that point, it's been 20 years. Okay. Right. We, we know this. But then this, no one had ever seen anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Right. It was so crazy. The, the closest we had with like visual effects, this stunning in 1993 was two years earlier for Terminator 2. Right. Right. Which, which did inspire some of the visual effects on this film. If it weren't for that, it w- we wouldn't have had the visual effects we had on this movie. Movie critics don't always get it perfectly right. You know, they they have opinions, they have thoughts. And and truth be told, I have another critic's opinion down here who I think is, uh, spoiler alert, absolute fecal matter. Uh, mm. But at the end of the day, I think what what is reflecting in some of these reviews is I think critics expected Jaws. Mm-hmm. Because half the reviews I read about Jurassic Park mention Jaws. Well, everyone's going to go back to the comparison that they know. So, you know, when we like we talk about Oppenheimer, so everybody's going to compare it to Batman because that's, you Another know, the Nolan film. Right. Yeah, in Batman, we had this, but in Oppenheimer, we had this. So because they're just going to compare it to that when you should be comparing it to something else or nothing at all. Just right. taking the film on its own. Right. Uh, you could compare it to Fat Man and Little Boy, which is a great film about the Manhattan Project. But no, I, I would concur. Most of their bad reviews or slightly negative reviews about this film basically made the opinion that it was like all all steak, no sizzle. Um, again, there's some thoughts about the characters. Ebert goes on later to say in the review that the characters are, quote, a ragtag bunch of half-realized, sketched-in personalities who exist primarily to scream, utter dire warnings, and outwit the monsters. He's not too wrong on that one. And there is, there is one of fender on that one and that's the screenwriter who spielberg uses quite a bit in his career and that's david kep Mm -hmm. um never been a fan of his of his writing because his stuff is very very it's cookie cutter first of all but everything's very two-dimensional for him Mm. Um, and his his dialogue there's not many writers out there that can top him for stale dialogue just watch he wrote a movie the following year if you want to go back and see some really really amazing dialogue <laughs> um, <laughs> one year after this movie came out another movie david kept wrote came out called the shadow watch that again and tell me that's not the cheesiest crap you've ever heard i love the shadow man alec baldwin you get you can't try well that you know what that's another movie with really excellent really good looking visual effects okay not good looking but good visual effects that are like they're interesting right and booing a film with yeah no it's not tarantino for sure so <laughs> i always i always remember one scene from the shadow and it was when baldwin showed up at somebody's house to do some investigating but he had to identify himself not as the shadow but as uh, somebody that worked for him so they had their little they had their call and answer so he says the sun is shining and then the guy responds with but the ice is slippery and then the guy it dawns on him that and he looks at alec baldwin he goes you are an agent of the shadow <laughs> you're an agent of the shadow <laughs> and, and alec baldwin's like, like yes that's why i taught you the code idiot no he says who and the guy goes oh Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. David Kep, we love you, but your dialogue sucks. <laughs> Thank uh, you for writing good movies, but your your dialogue is terrible. Well, Heather, do you do you think that the film is all dinosaurs and nothing else? 
I mean, no, I wouldn't say all dinosaurs and nothing else. Um, they had to build around it somehow to explain all this, mm -hmm. but I do think it's most of it. Well, and I think there's a good reason for that. So if you go back to the timeline of the film, the process, you know, like Trevor was earlier talking about how a film goes from, I'd like to make this movie to the movies on screen. Uh, Spielberg gave an interview because he was asked, I think he was on Colbert late, late with uh, Colbert about the crazy hellish stretch he endured in this year in which he made Jurassic Park, finished it, and then went off and shot Schindler's List. Again, two masterpieces in the same year uh, basically right he said he had actually been waiting to make schindler's list for 10 years uh waiting for the right script to come along after he read the original book but with this one when he read the book he, he his exact quote uh, in a previous interview was really funny i fell over myself i made a fool of myself in front of michael doing everything but getting down on my knees and begging him because i loved the idea of dna and dinosaurs and all the combinations and things you could do with it they paid Crichton 1.5 million for the rights to the movie i think before the book even came out I think you're right on that. I can't remember when the book came out, but it was very close to when um, this was optioned and set mm. to be made. And I can't remember. I think somebody else might have had this before Spielberg. Spielberg was probably always attached as a producer, but actually directing it. I mean, that's the same with a lot of movies is mm. somebody else has it and then it ends up in someone else's hands and it's made great. Like you just mentioned sure. Schindler's List. That was supposed to be Scorsese. Did you know that? Did not know that. Yeah. And Scorsese was like, yeah, I think you should do it. <laughs> so. Well, well, it's funny. He said that he he took 10 years to make the movie, but when he finally did make it, he had to make the decision to make it that year because basically he said that he finally got a script of the movie that he liked, like really, really liked. And he and his wife were reading it, he said, and he wanted to make it before winter started in Poland. No, we're, so we're he, winter ended in Poland. Thank you. Before winter ended in Poland because he didn't want to have to wait another calendar year to make the movie. Yep. Yeah. He was ready to go right then and there. So he left, yes. he left Hawaii in probably October of 1992 mm -hmm. and flew right over to um, Poland and Germany to film over there for the next several months. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of comments and you can watch Jurassic Park and see it left and right. There's a lot of like editing errors in there. Yes. Um, like the, the cars are wet before it starts raining, stuff like that. Um, things that weren't caught. And I think part of that is the fact that they were viewing the edits over an archaic 1993 style internet. Mm -hmm. He says they, when he went, when he sent the film, it said that sound effects editing wasn't done. Mixing wasn't done. And color correcting wasn't done. Okay. Yeah. That makes That's sense. what he said anyway. Yeah. Um, and that he trusted those three things to George Lucas to oversee while he was in Poland. But, filming. Yeah. I mean, it was all ILM anyway. So it was all up there getting everything finished. But yeah, there's a lot of stories about the editing of this movie and the filming of Schindler's List simultaneously. And then getting this one ready for release while starting to cut Schindler's List and then promoting this one and then pivoting to promoting Schindler's List at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Yes, this may have won three Oscars, but Schindler's List won seven. So at the end of the night, Steven Spielberg movies had won 10 in 1993, yep. which wow. is pretty crazy. Yep. And again, the, the, the gamble pays off for Spielberg because I was doing a little bit of research on historical payouts for films to directors and how much money they wind up making on films. And it turns out that this payday that Spielberg got for this is estimated to be $250 million mm -hmm. because he had a deal for a flat amount plus a percentage of, of, of gross profits. Mm -hmm. And uh, some directors do this. So for a, for a comparison, when Christopher Nolan did Dunkirk just recently, $20 million and 20% of gross earnings. 
Mm-hmm. That's a re- what Dunkirk, what five years old at this point? I mean, not not exceptionally old. So that was his deal. And so Spielberg got one of the biggest paydays apparently in movie history for this film, but it's not the biggest. According to my mm-hmm. notes, the biggest one is anyone want to take a guess which director earned the payday for the biggest one? Well, I'm not going to guess because I'm looking right at it. <laughs> well, you can go ahead and spoil it. Who who got yeah. the biggest payday? I've I've heard this too, and I don't know how much truth there is to it, but you say it's it's Mel Gibson for Passion of the Christ. And um, apparently that's because he was really having trouble getting studios to want to make the film. So he personally invested a lot of his own money into it. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I'm sure there were lots of deals made for, hey, I'm going to give you this much for this much back. And then when the film massively succeeded, uh, he took a fat chunk of profits. I've heard that and I've seen that figure before. Like if he pulled in 350 to 400 million for that movie, which is possible. I'm not saying it didn't. Yeah. That's a domestic box office of 600 million. So 200 million went to someone else and 400 went to him. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I don't know. Right. Well, and that's that's one thing I wouldn't have had the context on as I was doing the research for the film, because when I was looking at the numbers at first, I said, my God, $250 million for a movie. When modern movies, the directors are getting 20 to $30 million, that number still stands out in a pretty big way. So I guess jumping into some other really interesting aspects about the film, uh, I know Tra- uh, Heather has a few thoughts about the sound and, and some other things about it. Oh, I absolutely have lots of thoughts about the sound. So When I was in college, I had to pick a movie and talk about the Foley sound for that film. And so I picked Jurassic Park. I didn't know McFoley was in this film. The Foley sound? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And so it was just really like, I wish I had a copy of that paper because I I found all these crazy things that they did. So describe Um, what Foley editing is okay for, yeah. for, for the uh, uninitiated right. for, the, for the for the one our one listener that may not know what that is okay. and me for the record so um so foley sound is uh it's where people will come in with like different objects and well for example like let me find it here i was watching a video earlier um about one of the ladies who actually worked on this film and she explained how they made the film for the baby dinosaur hatching and she had ice cream cones that she was holding in front of a microphone and she was breaking them in her hand. And that was the sound of the egg actually hatching. Yeah. And then she said what they needed for this scene was uh, like a wet sound coming from inside of the shell. Mm-hmm. And so she had a cantaloupe that she was squeezing, right? She was squeezing the juice out of it and holding it, you know, of course, right there in front of the mic. And then she was scraping she had a knife and she was scraping a pineapple and that is what they used for the sound of the dinosaur's skin as they picked the baby dinosaur up yeah Um, so it's it's kind of crazy to see like what they actually have to do and how creative uh they really get when they go and create all these sounds that you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And I was also uh, earlier today, I was watching a, a video um, with Gary Rydstrom and he, mm-hmm. um, I, I can't remember his title right now, but he did. He um, was one of the sound designers. Mm-hmm. And he did so much cool stuff. He was talking about how they went and like, nobody knows what a dinosaur sounds like. He said mm-hmm. that he talked to scientists and they were all, you know, he, they all basically gave him an, I have no idea answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he said it was completely useless, but mm-hmm. he said that, you know, he had to go and like, okay, what does a T-Rex sound like? Right. Well, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't know, We but we have to figure it out. And it's a critical element um, of the film. You have yeah, to get that right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so he actually said that they went and recorded elephants. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they brought out these like big giant elephants to get these like deep sounds. And he was like, what about the baby elephant over there? And they were like, the baby elephant doesn't make any sound. And so he was like, bring it out anyway. So they brought out the baby elephant and he was recording this elephant. And this elephant, like one time made this high pitched trumpeting sound Mm -hmm. that he said it was the crux of the T-Rex roar. So I don't know. I think stuff like that is just really fascinating and very, very creative. Well, it's just a big, like blending a whole bunch of sounds until you get it to mm-hmm. sound like just you want. If anybody's ever, or if anybody wants to waste some time, just Google or go to YouTube and, and look at a Foley session. <laughs> They're kind F- of funny. <laughs> F-O-L-E-Y, F-O-L-E-Y, Foley. Uh, really, really good. But uh, I, that's everything from knocking on a door or I think back in the, the 40s when they first started doing this stuff that uh, guys would get in a fist fight in movies. Well, you're not actually hitting somebody in a movie. So mm-hmm. you have to actually simulate the sound with your hands or whatever in front of a microphone. And the sound mm-hmm. that somebody used at one time was hitting like a, like a ham, I think. Mm-hmm. They like punched a ham and that made that Everyone does it when you're a kid. You're pretending like you're fighting. You go. <laughs> yep. That's what that is. It's the sound of someone hitting a ham. And they just reuse <laughs> it over and over again for the next 50, 60, 70 years. So until we got more, you know, what what's a punch really sound like? But yeah, you watch anything from the 80s, 70s, 60s, that far back, you hear that. <laughs> it's awesome. And it's all it's all fully all fully it's it's incredible you might also happen upon footage of an amazingly hall of fame professional wrestler as well but that's that's good you can get both of those in one fell swoop yeah that's what we're talking about (laughs) what (laughs) foley mick foley oh right good lord look i'm just vamping to try to get as many celebrity followers to the show as possible right i'm trying to get our listener group to two (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) well speaking of great effects in the film one of the effects i love to kind of fixate on uh, because I noticed new facets about it when we watched the film is the reveal, the, the moment when we realize something is coming. Uh huh. Are you the, talking about the little the water ripples? Yes. Mm-hmm. If the fact that you're looking at it close shot tied to this water cup and then mm-hmm. now, Trevor, do you? I'm sure I'm as as geeked about this movie as you are. You have to know the story of how they did that. I know how they did that. Tell me, I'm here. Okay, so they um they couldn't figure it out. They knew they had to have that happen, but they were trying to figure out how they were going to do it. And of course, if it was 2023, they would just CG the crap out of it. <laughs> but apparently the story goes, the guy was sitting at home trying to figure it out and he had a cup of water and he, he just randomly put it on his guitar, just thinking like, or even maybe not thinking, but he put it on there and he just plucked the low string and the ripples happened. And he was like, oh my God, here we go. We got it. So they they <laughs> essentially they essentially strung a like a like a guitar string underneath the car and plucked it and it shook the whole car and got that that effect they were looking for. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Yeah. It, it shook the whole guitar. It shook the whole car, even to the point where when I watched it the next when I watched it the last time we watched it, I never noticed the mirror shake. The mirror shakes, yeah. It does. Which which is equally impressive, right? The lawyer's looking in the rearview mirror. Brr, again, mm-hmm. equally impressive. Maybe it's a power trying to cut back on. <laughs> right. Maybe it's a power trying to cut back on. I suddenly have to go to the bathroom. He just leaves the kids there. <laughs> he just runs and leaves the kid. I, uh, what an absolute jerk move, by the way. Yeah. Well, again, it's the even in the nineties, not so high opinions of lawyers. Oh yeah. Well, well, especially considering how he met his end. Yeah. Do you know the the name of the the shark in Jaws? 
like the, the shark didn't have a name, but the, the mechanical shark had a name. Oh, it was Bruce, wasn't it? Bruce, yeah. And you know who that is? Who Who is Bruce? Is that Spielberg, I don't know. Spielberg's lawyer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I only so, know that because my principal gave that facto to our robotics team because they were working on a robot and they couldn't get it to work. And he stepped in and inspired them one day. He told them the story of how Jaws kind of... Uh, soldiered along with a with broken bruce a machine shark that would not work very well the kids were highly inspired they called it broken bruce for the rest of the mm. for the for the rest of the season <laughs> i don't know if uh stan winston gave any of the dinosaurs names but probably not because they all were just dinosaur there's a t-rex there's a triceratops but also very little of it is 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 computer which mm-hmm. is crazy there's something like there's like 40 effect shots in this movie compared mm-hmm. to like a Marvel movie. It's like 2000, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess on the rewatch, things are starting to look a little bit dated now. I mean, it is 30 years old, but it has, it still holds up, but there's, there's a few spots in there where, where things kind of look a little, a little archaic by comparison to how they are now. You can always tell when the dinosaur is computer versus animatronic, other than the fact that, looks more realistic when it's animatronic right but uh, if you see the dinosaur head to toe it's computer mm-hmm. because they didn't they didn't make any dinosaurs that were they didn't make a full-size t-rex um, well and even back then it would have been really hard i think to capture in a certain way like the scene the scene that's really noticeable how real it is in terms of that realism is the scene where dr grant gets out and points the flare at it to get its attention yeah he turns around and roars at Dr. Grant and you can see the reflection of the flare on the dinosaur's face. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really hard, that would have been a very hard effect to achieve with CG at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's a good one. Um, I mean, anything, the dinosaur coming down on the car, all real, but like when he comes out of the cage, when he's walking in front of Grant and Malcolm's car, when it takes that diving leap at the car and starts mm-hmm. chewing on the tire that all, all CG there, of course, eating the lawyers, all CG, the Raptors are all CG. When you see them head to toe, mm-hmm. uh, when you just see you, you'll either see just the, their, their upper half, or you'll just see their feet mm-hmm. and the, the yes. feet is the feet is puppet work. And then the, mm-hmm. the rest of it is just guys in suits mm-hmm. really. And, but they don't do that anymore, even though it <laughs> right. looks better you Mm -hmm. know and i guess this is the transition part here where i get into how crappy cgi looks these days (laughs) um and it it has to do with with the 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 color correcting too because you get this and you color correct it and you're color correcting something that's on the same image you're color correcting an actor and you're color correcting an animatronic and it all looks uniform when it's done right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you color correct before you send it over to the cg artist and the cg artist is putting it in there they're compositing it and it doesn't match the same color tone and i think everybody nowadays they color grade based on the color wheel i don't know if anybody's familiar with that or not but uh Mm -hmm. basically what you want to do is you want to get all the color tones to one specific point which is essentially flesh tone Mm -hmm. well if you if you color grade based on your vision if you're looking at the screen you don't ever land on that line because Mm -hmm. it doesn't look natural when it's on that line if you've been trained to color grade to that line then it looks very orangish So go back and look at Jurassic World and tell me it doesn't look orange when you look at it again. <laughs> and then the dinosaurs stand out on top of that because they are not orange. Mm-hmm. And this is this is prevalent everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And it's not overwhelmingly, it's not it's not tinted, it's not like it's not tinted, it's not like a sapia tone or anything like that. It's just mm-hmm. it's not natural. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really about the only thing I can say. And whenever somebody says the CG looks terrible, that's probably one of the elements that we're talking about mm-hmm. is that is that they just don't look like they're healthy humans. I think it's been an issue in a lot of recent movies. Now, some of that I think might be attributed to because there have been a lot of stories coming out recently that especially like Marvel and DC are really bad for this. They're apparently working their CG animators to the absolute bone on timelines. They're, they're killing them. Right. It's obviously affecting the quality of the work. I mean, some of those flat, some of those flash CG scenes looked like Matrix Reloaded bad because there were a couple parts in Matrix Reloaded that was like, especially like my favorite scene, the one where Neo was fighting all of the Agent Smith clones. Love that scene, but there's several parts where you're like, okay, bro, that's that's very obviously a computer. Mm-hmm. You know, because it just it, like the the like you said, the tone doesn't match. It's ve- like it looks like a cartoon more than it looks like a person. The Mummy sequel, same thing. Brendan Fraser told a very funny story about meeting those animators, and they were like, "Sorry, dude, my bad," <laughs> yeah. because the Rock CG was just real bad. So, but let me ask you this then, and this might take you a minute to think about it. What is a movie that you think testifies to the positive effects of CGI in a film? I think. The movies that do that are the ones that don't overuse it, but mm-hmm. they use it to enhance the image, right? And not be, you know, you look at, you look at, uh, just to crap on Marvel some more, you know, <laughs> Marvel, you you look at the, that shot in Endgame where they're all charging at each other and the camera's like pushing in and they all meet in the middle. Yeah. I, I hate that. I hate it. It looks so bad. Like if I want to watch a cartoon, I'll put on freaking bluey or something like that at least looks better you know than that filth that abomination (laughs) yeah there's depth there's 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 like uh detail to it and everything but come on that is not movie making man come on but when you when you actually film something do a stunt do a big set piece like that but then you have to put some cg in there to make it come together i guess mm-hmm. um look at the most recent uh mission impossible movie i don't know if you saw it or not but you've seen i've not seen it yet but... okay so you've at least seen the ad where he rides that bike off the edge of the cliff right yes because he's nuts <laughs> yeah because he's nuts well there's no there's no that's not cg he really did that right he yeah. rode the bike off but you look at the behind the scenes and he didn't really ride it off of rock right like there's a ramp there and then mm-hmm. they covered right. the ramp with siege so they enhance a shot that way mad max fury roads another one right there's there's a lot going on there but most of it's practical and they right pretty judicious pretty judicious use of cgi yeah. yes they, they they put that in there but cg's everywhere and it's hard to it's hard to not see a movie even even drama movies mm-hmm. like um i saw i saw a visual effects reel for Gone Girl. Where's the CG in that one? Like it doesn't need CG, but it's there. It's there because that that the the house that they live in, that's all a set. So everything's green screen behind it. So they they CG the neighborhood and outside the windows and the door. Hmm. They're filming on a sound st- or a, a back lot, a studio. Well, yeah. Back lots in LA and they can make the back lot look like New York City if they want, but you can't get the skyscrapers in, so that's all CG. Mm-hmm. They're they're enhancing shots on that one. They're not overdoing it. Well, an interaction is going to be to a minimum where it may not be as big a deal, like you said, as characters who are supposed to be integral to a scene interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I saw, I remember seeing this and this it's probably almost 20 years old now, and it, 
it still rubs me the wrong way when I think about it. When they were filming the King Kong remake, Peter Jackson, and uh, there's a scene in the movie where the boat that they're on runs aground and everybody's they're, they're filming this scene. So the boats run aground, but of course, they're not actually on a boat. They're on a set. So they have to make it look like they're losing their balance because the boat's about to tip over. And the scene that I saw was um, Peter Jackson directing Naomi Watts and Adrian Brody in this moment. And he's just coming off of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which that still holds up today. And hopefully we'll maybe we'll get to that one because that's 20 years old now. The Mm -hmm. third one that's on the list that holds up because they don't overuse the CG in that one. It's used a lot, but it's not overused. Unlike the Hobbit trilogy, that is very overused and very terrible looking, just awful. So King Kong was kind of like, oh, man, we did a lot of really great stuff with CG in, in Lord of the Rings. Let's let's step it up a bit. So the scene in question was he was showing Adrian Brody and Naomi Watts his like his screen, his little monitor that he had. And it was like a wireframe depiction of how the camera was going to move around them and the motion that he wanted them to take. So he's like, you need to mimic this motion. So they were like, uh, losing their balance or whatever. Nobody can see what I'm doing. I'm moving my arms around and flailing. Them he's he's doing a Shatner. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, they're like, we need you to move. Star Trek joke. <laughs> they're like, we need you to move like this. We need you to act like this. We need your face to be plain and blank. No expression at all. Move like this. No expression. Camera's going to move like this. We will then make your face the way we want it to be in post-production. That's terrible. And then How he said better. And then he said, this is the future of filmmaking. It's like, hold up, bro. You got Naomi Watts, who is amazing. You got Adrian Brody, who is amazing. And you're telling them not to act. You're telling don't, them to don't to, make a face. Yeah, don't make a face. Mimic this wire thing. And like, just walk around like that. Meanwhile, in 2023, we have extras telling us that on the filming of movies, they're being walked into stu- into tents and having full body scans taken of themselves yep. so that they can be used in future movies and not paid. That's I don't, terrible. Don't even get me started on what Marvel does with this nonsense because they do pre-visualization on everything. Yeah. And so what, what that just... Uh, God bless it okay here we go the (laughs) the what they'll do is they'll they're like visual storyboards this pre-visualization so instead of drawing out what the scene's going to look like frame by frame they actually animate the scene they have like a third party that comes in and they animate it out and you see this whole scene play out animation style and this is done years before they film right Mm -hmm. two three four years before they even start rolling in some cases they don't even have a script yet they just know what this big action sequence is going to look like and they start developing it out and then what what they'll do is they'll when they hire their director they'll show them this pre-visualization and say this is what it needs to look like (laughs) wow cut and paste yep and then uh, and in in some cases too the the software that they're using this company that they that i I can't remember their name so i'm not even going to get Yes, but you see it. It's in all the credits. Pre-visualization by this company. They use the software they made. What it'll do is it'll see the scene and they do this for every scene or almost every scene. They might do it for almost the entire movie, even the the walking and talking scenes. Right. And it'll say this is what it looks like when these two characters are walking down the road, talking to each other. And based on how we've designed it, that means you need to use this type of lens on your camera. And that means you need to put it on this type of track. And the track needs to move at this speed. And it's going to be a crane shot. So the crane's going to 
to go up and down at this rate. Wow. It's like it figures it out all for them before they even get there. And again, in some cases, before they even have a whole script written. And like, it's, I, it's like that scene from The Office where they're like, no, this is the commercial. You know, this is where you can be creative. You know, you can stand yeah, and wave, yeah. you can smile and wave. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and that's what they tell these directors that that's their, their way they justify it is by saying, oh, well, you know, we take care of all this so that they can work with the actors to get the best performance out of the actors they can get. Like those actors give a crap. They're there for the paycheck at this point. Mm-hmm. And because they know the script they've been getting is total trash, that there's really nothing they can do to bring any life into characters. It's mm-hmm. it, I, that's terrible. It's really I, awful. I don't completely hate these movies. I just I, I don't like what they've become and I don't like how they've what they're doing. Well, and that's part of the that might be part of the reckoning we're coming to with the strike, because there are a lot of issues that have come to light much quicker than people anticipated. Because, for example, you've got writers right now who are striking against studios because they're concerned that the studio is going to kick them out and use AI to write scripts. That's terrible. Yeah, definitely a crossroads for for film, TV, streaming, the whole the whole nine yards. Uh, well, let's so let's for just a second, we've. We've all kind of, I think, slightly given away our general opinion of the film uh, that we all very much like it. Uh, but what I would say is let's let's slide into some nitpick, you know, okay. kind of see, go into those 1% detail questions. So Trevor, seven viewings of this film. Mm-hmm. When it came out, many, many more viewings, I'm sure, as you have, have become older. In oh, fact, yeah. I, think you, I think you said in the last episode, you could have done the episode right after that without having I, to yeah. watch it again. I didn't um, need to watch it. <laughs> Give me, give me your top one or two nitpicks. One or two nitpicks. Well, there's the things littered with errors, with continuity errors. The mm-hmm. Door, the car is open, and then the door is closed, and then the next scene, the kid's closing the door on the T Rex. So it's <laughs> just stupid stuff like that. The cars are wet before it rains. I think that we hurry through the story a little bit too much. Everyone seems to turn on Hammond very quickly. I don't remember it happening that fast. Mm-hmm. I remember they were they're all in the visitor center at the in the control room and Samuel Jackson's like I'll go over to that bunker and flip the switch and get the power back on you guys go wait in the bunker and wait for me to re- come back and then like five minutes later they're all back there and Samuel Jackson's been gone for like an hour and Lord <laughs> oh no something's <laughs> happened I that, that happens real quick or I also remember the journey on foot being more perilous for Alan Grant and the two kids but yeah. it seems it seems like they go in the tree, they come down from the tree, they stumble across the eggs, they see the gallimimus, the kid gets fried, they're back at the uh, visitor center. It's like, that's it. That's all we see of Yeah, we remember that wild. journey being a little longer than, yeah. than short, sure. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, maybe that's just watching it on, on the rewatch, stuff like that, but that kid didn't die? Are you kidding me? 10,000 volts? So, Stop. I did read this. I read this at the time, because Heather and I were watching that, and she's like, how is that kid not dead? Yeah. Apparently that is only even like a third of the voltage you get when you get tased. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll have to read it again. But to some extent, I think when you get tased, you get even like 20,000 volts. And so I read something to the effect of when you are electrocuted, the volts aren't what gets you. It is the amperage that gets you. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Stan corrected. Still, his hair standing up and his ears are charred. Right. I don't know if that happens to you when you get tased, but I guess those are my my nitpicks. Oh, I also remember that when this movie first came out and after... I'm sorry, the low end of a stun gun is 50,000 volts. <laughs> oh, okay. So 10,000, they didn't really do their research then. That wasn't... T-Rex bite into that. He's going to be like, huh? <laughs> say, that's not, may, say, maybe we're not looking at this from the right direction. This is not an effective deterrent to the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> he touched it. He's like, eh. <laughs> oh, ow. 
<laughs> let's see when i remember so maybe the power was on the whole time and it's just a sucky shot yeah that's true this come out over the summer of 93 so what i when i got back to school in the fall everybody was talking about it mm-hmm. we hadn't seen everybody just a few friends uh and one thing everybody talked about was where the sequel was going to come from and everybody was saying the sequel was going to come from that can of barbasol that had all the embryos in it Mm -hmm. um yeah they show it to us and um we never hear about it ever again in the next Mm -hmm. subsequent five movies it got pretty Um, destroyed i thought yeah no it gets covered with mud which doesn't necessarily destroy it because it still does technically cool it off yeah Okay. Um, well, and, and one of my criticisms is very similar and revolves around that character. So what does John Hammond say over and over and over again about this, about this Island? Spared no expense. Spared no expense. And, oh, and, and, and again, Richard Attenborough is a treasure. Great escape. Mwah, love it. But if he spared no expense around the camp, why is it that this guy is stealing embryos from him? Because he hasn't been paid enough. Mm-hmm. He did mm-hmm. mention that several times. Right. Samuel L. must be getting paid enough to be fine. But apparently Nedry was not getting paid very well. Either that or he just thinks more of himself than he's worth. He's probably mm-hmm. getting, he, he may have been getting compensated completely fairly, but he's just like, oh man, I built the architecture for this whole thing. You're paying me $200,000 for this. I deserve a billion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and then he goes hyper petty. And it, my first thought was, okay, if you're trying to sneak out with embryos, there has to be a better solution than killing the power to the entire park. It would be like saying you want to rob a house and shutting down the power to the entire block instead of just that house. <laughs> but you know, again, that's, that's, that's where we nitpick. My second question, is why is Malcolm in the movie? Um, because, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. in terms of the plot, right? Now, I did some research on it. Apparently, in the novel, Crichton basically has him serve as the mouthpiece and the commentator of the film. Because apparently, in the novelization, Grant and um, Grant and Ellie actually really love the idea and think the part's going to be amazing, pretty much from the jump. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm is the voice of reason. Ironic that he is not the voice of reason in the movie. Except for like the one or two lines, right? He is a voice of reason. He's not He's not at all enthralled with the park. He's completely against it the moment he sets on foot on the island. Because hmm. he's the one that delivers the the line about, you spend so much time thinking about it, could do it, you never stop to think about if you should do it. Well, I guess but he, maybe- s- he said that after though. After, they hadn't even seen the park yet. That was when they were sitting there having lunch after they saw oh. the after they saw the raptors. I thought he said that after the after yeah. the attack started, but I could no. be wrong. Yes. Nope. Why schedule lunch after you fed a velociraptor? I mean, because, who can... be- because then you get the funny line. Yes. Well, who's hungry? <laughs> <laughs> well, who's who's hungry? <laughs> no one. Oh uh, yeah, that that part was pretty funny. But no, I, I again, I love Jeff Goldblum. No problem with him being in any films uh, at all. But uh, I was curious about the placement of his character. And apparently he's there. The lawyer insisted on having him come along. They kind of won off to the line that he was coming along to help with like a different viewpoint on the part. I already got Ian Malcolm, but they think he's too trendy. They want Alan Grant. Grant, you'll never get him out of my tunnel. <laughs> yeah, I know the lines of this movie pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> he's too trendy, which is funny because Goldblum does play that really well, because I think for most of the film that he's in up until the dinosaurs attack, mm-hmm. I actually think he's a little flighty. And spends most of the trip like trying to get with Ellie. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I heard that uh they had auditioned Jim Carrey for that role. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I could I could see that, that. was that would have yeah. that would have been um that's pre Ace Ventura. Yeah. Um, but uh so he would have been in that one before Ace Ventura had come out subsequent mask and dumb and dumber. That would have been dumb all dumber, 90, yep. that'd have been ninety four. All three of those movies came out, ninety four. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would have been interesting and I I 
was trying to visualize what that would have been like. So you two uh, take up dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right. Uh, well, I, I have some nitpicks about this film. Okay. So my biggest, well, not the biggest one, but the, the one I'll start with is uh, where John Hammond is sitting there inside the control room and it's pouring down raining. And who does he tell? Who uh, You guys will have to remind me. Who does he tell? Is it Samuel L. Jackson's character that he says, go get my grandchildren? No, and, he tells the husband. Oh, yeah, he okay. tells the, okay. yeah. yeah the, and, I'm, and I'm like, no, no, you created this disaster. You go get them. They're your grandkids and their parents will never let you spend time with them ever again. The old man who walks with a cane is going to go get the dinosaur. Now that's a movie I want to see. <laughs> Yeah, it's a short movie. He walks into the bush. The T Rex eats him. Roll credits. I mean, good lord! But he created this disaster and was more than happy to send someone else to go fix mm-hmm. it. And I'm like, he's no, rich. rich people ain't got to do anything for themselves. They can yeah, just write a check. He's but a billionaire, they're, but they're his grandkids. At least it's a real billionaire, unlike Jurassic Park three. But that's a whole other. That's a whole other uh, bag of bag of worms there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so my other biggest gripe with this film is that it's the idea that this guy is trying to play God. Mm-hmm. by creating these creatures that have been extinct for years. Yeah. I mean, you know, and in the end, when it all kind of blows up in his face and everything goes wrong, I'm like, well, yeah, you, you kind of deserve that because you're doing something that should have never been done. Mm-hmm. And of course, then after this movie came out, there was all the news reports on 60 Minutes in 2020. Like, could this actually, could this be possible? And mm-hmm. um, I think back on those and I watched those anytime anything Jurassic Park was on TV, I want to watch it. No matter how stupid and boring it was, like 60 Minutes to a 10 year old. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but I watched it anyway because they were talking about Jurassic Park and maybe they would have had a shot of my idol, Mr. Spielberg on there. <laughs> but uh, they were talking about it. And I think back on that now and I'm like, you know what? Of course, this is not possible. That's why it's called science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> like they should have 60 minutes. So when are the lightsabers coming? Yeah. <laughs> or following on 60 minutes, hoverboards. What year? Yeah. What year? 2015, obviously. <laughs> well, but of course, the producers leaned into that, right? They like shot videos like, yeah, they just haven't let us put it in Toy Stores yet. I did rewatch this before we, we recorded this. I rewatched it with my nephew, who's 11. It's his first time seeing it. He's been asking to see it for a while. We finally sat down to watch it uh, and it was cool. But when they started explaining the science of everything, it kind of goes over your head a little bit. And um, he was like, wait, so this could happen? I said, no, no. Can we get dinosaur blood from mosquitoes and amber? Yes, we can. Can we sequence DNA and fill in sequence gaps with amphibian DNA? No, not. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. You'd be left with nothing if you did right. that. Honestly, scientifically speaking, the genetic engineering is probably more the problem uh, than the than the issue of finding blood in uh, in a mosquito in amber. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that I'm sure that happens in in certain animal kingdoms. But uh, you know, maybe they're maybe that's where their design comes from. Their design with both. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I'm not getting involved in social conversations. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not either. I just it's one of those things where when you look in the rearview, you look at something that like imagine if that appeared in a Jurassic Park film today. Mm-hmm. Right. Like imagine they write that part into a Jurassic Park film like, oh, they're all female. Wait, you mean dinosaurs can change their gender? Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So. Uh... So one yeah. one more note I will point out because I just have to get on my soapbox for a minute because I just read this and it's upsetting. There's one part of the aspect of 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 critiquing movies that does tend to upset me. 
And it is when film critics take themselves entirely too seriously and say things that I think are 9,000% out of line about movies and the way they're made. Uh, case in point, I'm not mentioning the name of the author because I don't want to give them any undue, I don't want to give them any credit and have you go read this article. But uh, there is a popular website that I found pretty quickly by a popular author with the headline something to the effect of Jurassic Park was never a good movie. And I took a minute to summarize some of their points. And some of their points, in my opinion, are just ghastly. One of them being, my favorite one is essentially that he takes it a step farther than Ebert. He says that, well, None of the characters in this movie are good. Everyone is. It's very traditional critic. Everyone is bad. Nothing about this film is good. In fact, my the only criticism I would point out is he essentially makes the point that he thinks that Steven Spielberg should, he, he essentially said something like Steven Spielberg who made this movie and Steven Spielberg who made his other great movie should go back and talk to each other about the importance of, and he used some big some fancy academic term that I was sitting to myself like this self-important piece of crap <laughs> is not realizing that he is crapping all over an amazing movie with really no objective feedback in my general opinion. So where is the limit in terms of criticism on where, when does a critic go too far in making critiques of a film in, in your opinion, Trevor? I mean, uh, I, I, I think, kept out a lot of details. They have it in the show notes, but I did not want to publicize this individual. So this could get more. Cause again, I'm not here to try to get them more clicks or anything, but I, I thought many of the takes were well out of line and, and frankly, a little self-important. Well, I think that's at the point when crit criticism would go too far, as you say, is when you end up with a, an article or an opinion about something that is just dropping points to drop points that don't really i don't know when you're just trying to be loud for the point of being loud and you're not actually critiquing anything anymore uh like he, he, you have written here where he talks about how nothing is less inherently cinematic than people talking to each other boy that's true that's true and you can't avoid that even though it says hitchcock said movies don't really require dialogue at all well but they 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 do to an extent, especially if you're trying to tell something that's a little bit complicated that has to be explained mm -hmm. to the audience. What so, was the technology for putting dialogue in movies when Alfred Hitchcock made movies, though? Yeah, I mean, but like the film students will sometimes be told that they have to like their first semester there, they got to make a short film that's silent because it's mm -hmm. a visual medium. You sure. should be able to tell the story without. And yes, you should. But unless you're making the movie to not be told like that you know, then you're, you're going to have to use it. The The right. trick is to do the dialogue in a, in a fun kind of way, mm -hmm. in a creative and cinematic way, not so much just walking and talking. That's boring. It is. It is. And yeah. you mm -hmm. see it in a sure. lot of stuff mm -hmm. just because you need to, you need to have that for the exposition of the, of the mm -hmm. narrative. You can't avoid that. You can limit it, but you can't avoid it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Spielberg does his stuff in a very, cinematic way because he knows yes. how to he knows his his big thing is is he knows how to block scenes blocking is where you direct people what goes where to mm -hmm. move on on stage yeah and so he could block a scene really well where other people don't normally it's just kind of like all right you sit that side of the table you sit at that side of the table we're gonna put a camera here we'll put a camera here 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 and here uh we'll film it from all sorts of different angles and then we'll just cut it together in post yeah we'll have a scene 
when Spielberg is like, okay, well, we're going to start here. We're going to move mm-hmm. here. And when we move here, the camera's going to move here. Watch mm-hmm. the scene. There's a scene in Jaws when they're having mm-hmm. a discussion about whether or not to close the beaches early in the movie. And they're doing it on a ferry. And Roy Scheider's on the ferry. And the mayor comes on the ferry in the car. And like five guys get out of the car. They start talking. It's a once. It's one shot. They don't cut in that whole scene. But mm-hmm. you get multiple different shots in that scene. You get this wide shot. You get three people in the frame. You get the close up with the both of them in the frame and then back to wide shot he's not cutting it he's just moving them around on the set on on Mm. on the set that's all he's doing and he does the same he does the same thing here and maybe the fact that he was putting this movie together while he was overseas filming another movie Mm -hmm. you know i think about the the dinner scene in the in the dining room the lunch scene in the dining room Mm-hmm. okay maybe that's maybe that's not that great in right. terms of because that's just cut 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 but mm-hmm. look at the look at the, the the kitchen scene there's hardly any dialogue mentioned in that one and that seems right. absolutely terrifying yes well in a, in a in a movie that was made many years before this that we talked about on this show that you even described in a way that i thought was great was the opening to et yeah the opening no- to et features no dialogue whatsoever and it's a it's a master again it's a i would imagine is a master class and how to put a scene together without dialogue so mm-hmm. you got a critic right here that is saying negative things about, quite frankly, one of the best directors ever to put movies to film. His piece here doesn't even make sense. He's like less cinematic than people talking to each other. And it's part of the reason what made other Crichton novels so awful. And he's referring to Sphere, Congo, and Disclosure. Okay, so I've actually never seen Disclosure, but I've seen the other two. And the other two are crap. But that's because those movies in Sphere, it's sitting and talking. And in Congo, it's walking and talking. Right. right? There's Well, because you're taking books that are massively long and... And you have to distill them into a film. And you're putting them in the hands of people that are not quite as competent in filming these boring sequences, mm-hmm. which I don't want to get this wrong. So I'm going to look it up before I say it. No, I will I, close out my criticism of the guy's feedback by pointing out the line that I think he said that I think was the absolute dumbest. Basically underscores that he does not get the film. The scene with the T-Rex would have been better if it had eaten the children. Oh. That's horrifying, and nobody wants to see that. You cannot tell me that you missed the point of a movie more than to say the the movie would have been, I think his exact words were vastly improved if the T-Rex had eaten the children. Vastly. Okay. No. no. And, and, And you're like, okay, this guy's writing crap that he knows he wants people to 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 click on and and, and draw attention to. And again, mm. maybe he won because I did exactly that, but I just think that in film criticism there's got to be and again, I'm not exactly a super seasoned movie critic. Trevor and I always come at these films from different angles. I'm more of a popcorn guy, but I've said before on this show, lots of effort and intentionality is put into making even bad movies sometimes. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say earlier. I was vamping for Trevor to have time to look up his yep. thing. <laughs> um so I said that uh Congo and Sphere were in lesser hands and uh i knew I, I just wanted to check the filmography on this before i said it but i remember this one congo was directed by a man named frank marshall mm-hmm. and frank marshall is notable because he has produced a lot of movies with steven spielberg but he's not directed a whole lot just a few he had directed um arachnophobia mm-hmm. and alive before during congo so that would have been looks like that would have been his third feature film and yeah just from working with spielberg all those years you think he would have picked up a few things but uh, i guess not and that's what makes those movies so poor is the stuff in between the cool action sequences 
Right. That if you leave that boring, then it's it's not going to be any good. And to maybe full circle it back to Oppenheimer, that movie was three hours of dialogue. That was it. <laughs> there was no set piece. There was no action. There's no nothing. It was a drama. I'd said before, I think on this show, that three-hour dramas like The Godfather aren't box office hits and they don't make that stuff anymore. This is that movie. Oppenheimer is exactly that movie. Mm-hmm. It's a three-hour wordy drama that somehow was made very cinematic and very engaging for three hours mm-hmm. and didn't feel like it at all. And that is just, if you know how to do it, then it's good. So Yes, which is something I, I tell people all the time uh, whenever they ask me how I feel about that film, especially I say, I, in my opinion, Christopher Nolan's one of the only directors who is consistently very proficient at that style of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start today. you here and work our way back. It's yep. an acquired skill. Very, yeah, it very much is. Or just natural. I don't know. Go back and watch Spielberg's first movie, which is du- uh, Duel. I almost said mm-hmm. Duel. Duel is an ABC movie of the week, made for TV movie, and it's absolutely incredible. And mm-hmm. you'll see some of his Jurassic Park techniques in that movie. So, Well, I guess then to kind of bring it full circle and, and sort of close the book, um, Trevor, uh, having heard the gushing first review of the film as a child, uh, what did you come to like, appreciate, think differently about it in the review. I just think it's held up. Um, and I think it still shows you exactly that you can still do practical effects in movies and it, like it looks good and that part doesn't look dated. What looks dated is the CG effects. And granted, it was archaic at the time. It was brand new and some of that stuff is starting to go out of date now. But I just think that if we're looking at 30 years from now, when we look back at something like Endgame or Infinity Wars, how dated is that going to look because of the computer graphics that are in there? Mm -hmm. Not that you could do that movie with practical effects, but still. 10 times more expensive. (laughs) No, 10 times cheaper. You think so? It was $63 million for this movie. Fair point. I don't know what that would be for inflation, but come on. That's 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 a good point. That's a good point. Go go back at uh, Titanic, and that movie was $200 million when they made it. And look at the practical effects on it. That still holds up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of Titanic and James Cameron, the one thing I did want to point out that I saw in my notes that I thought was hilarious and, and would really love to campaign for instead of uh, Jurassic World 25 is James Cameron apparently was in the running to get this film. Apparently the studio, James Cameron was in the running to direct this film and he got outmaneuvered and outbid for it. He said that it actually weren't worked out better for the total tone of the film. I think that Spielberg directed it. His vision was going to be much more violent. In fact, the term he used was aliens with dinosaurs. I yeah, want to like see to aliens see with dinosaurs. Yeah. I kind of give like me that. that. Give give me that, right? Get, give me a movie, you know, like we're doing these new takes on superhero movies where we're doing them R-rated with cursing and lots of violence. Give me Jurassic Park where the dinosaurs just like like cocaine bear on steroids. Like, let's do mm-hmm. it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and give Heather the last word here uh on this. When I saw it in the rear view, I liked it even more. Similar to Trevor, I had a new appreciation for different aspects of it. I noticed several things I didn't notice when I was a kid. And again, nobody watches Jurassic Park to say, oh my gosh, this story is 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 masterfully compelling or I love this dialogue. Again, nobody watches Star Wars to see Anakin Skywalker talk about how he feels about sand. I mean, it's just, it, there's different, you know, the movie doesn't have to be a dialogue masterpiece. I'll watch Tarantino if I want to see really good people talking to each other. Uh, mm-hmm. But this film, I think, holds up incredibly well uh, on the review as well. I think it still grips people tight as tightly as my wife gripped me while we were watching it. <laughs> On that note. Yes. So this movie did still, you know, there were some jump scares in it and some things that I just did not want to see. And all I kept thinking was, are those two kids ever going to get a break in this movie? Oh my gosh. Like, they're just <laughs> leave them alone. They're just kids. But, yep. you know, but no, I mean, as watching it now, I appreciate it a lot more.
more. I appreciate the creativity uh, and the sound effects and the animatronics. I think that's just phenomenal what they were able to accomplish with the dinosaurs and just kind of pioneering some of the things that they did in this film that had just Mm -hmm. never been done before. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't know anything about any of that. And so now I can really just look at it and think, wow, like some of this is really cool. Well, it sounds like that just about closes the book for us on the wonderful, wonderful film that is Jurassic Park. And I guess, Trevor, I think I saw the flashing of light in the eyes. I think he is preparing to fire up Computron to tell us what... Uh, what our film for October is going to be. October already? Goodness. This is our September film. Did we ever get the whammy sound effect? We need that in here. We yeah. did. We did. I we did. did. Okay, good. Heather quite masterfully did that, along with all of the bleeping that I wanted. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's let's fire it up. Here we go. Copy try. No whammies, no whammies, no whammies, no whammies. Stop. Okay. This is a good one right here. Uh, back to 2000. <laughs> what? My wife's face. Looks like she is sitting at the doctor's at the vet's office waiting to hear if her dog's dead or not. <laughs> Are you waiting to see if we landed on the exorcist? Pretty much. Yeah. His excitement would be much higher for that. We <laughs> we, we should do that because William Freakin just passed away. Uh, he directed that movie, so we should do it to honor him. But no, Computron has spoken, and we must obey our, our uh, digital master here. 2003, we're going to one of the cultiest cult classic movies of all time. So bad that it's good. Sir, we got the room. <laughs> oh, no. I have no idea what this is. Oh, uh, <laughs> You will be you will be quoting it left and right for the rest of your life. How's it going, Mark? Oh, oh hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Oh, Some somebody want to give me a better clue here? No, so, I yeah, will tell you absolutely yeah. nothing, and then show it to you. Yeah, I'll say that it's an indie film from 2003. It was made on shoestring budget, financed by the film's director, writer, and star. And star. Who knows where he got the money from? Nobody knows. They really um, don't know. And um, it's it's just awful. It's just a relationship drama, and it's just it's pure. It's awful. It's really bad. But, I'm sorry. Can we tell Computron to try again? Oh nope. no, this is happening. No, nope, we're doing <laughs> this because this does fall under that that banner of so bad that it's good. Um, oh no, no, he loves those movies. I know. I, yeah. For the record, this is very likely going to stretch the limits for me of the so bad it's good definition. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you have no idea what we are in for. No, the, ac- the, the acting is yeah, the acting is terrible, but it's it's almost like it's high like school a, theater production terrible. I mean, it's like Rocky Horror for bad movies because like they'll host these they'll host midnight screenings of this movie in certain places and people like show up dressed up. They'll sit there to quote the movie. They'll do reenact the movie while it's going on. I mean, just like Rocky horror, it's goofily throw a football back and forth. Yeah. On the roof. On the All right. Roof. Well, it doesn't sound like it's going to give me nightmares. So I no, 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 no. Okay it's it, it's going to give Trevor nightmares, but outside of that, yeah, I don't love the so bad that it's good thing. Like it's not, it's not no. good. It's bad. Yeah, exactly. So. And I personally think that's a waste of my time. <laughs> no, it's it's entertaining. At like least. because like he 
it's just like Scotty just has this thing about good, bad movies is what he calls them. And I'm like, no, that is a waste of your time. Just pick a good movie. So I'll give you a classic example. The Expendables 4 is coming out. I have seen The Expendables 1 through 3. And here's what I will tell you. None of those movies are going to win an Oscar. None of those movies are going to win a Golden Globe. None of of that's going to happen. No awards will be won in the making of that film. But you know what will be had? A lot of fun. Because all the Expendables movies... Not being cinematic masterpieces are lots of fun. And well, maybe that's a better definition is movies. Some movies, some bad movies are just fun. Just because it's a not an Oscar winning movie doesn't mean it's a bad movie. That's exactly. not. Exactly. Yeah. So this one, this is bad. This is not a well-made movie. Maybe we should, maybe no. we should, maybe we should double feature this one. Actually, now that I think about it. Oh, maybe you we should double it with another movie. I want to, let's double it with another movie, but what? not, but not a movie that's on our list. I'm just going to throw it out. And we can choose to do this. So there's The Room. Which I think is, I know what you want to do, but I'm here for it. Go. This is there's The Room, which is awful. But then there was a movie made a few years ago outside of our 10, 15, our 10, 20, no, our 20, 30, 40 rule called The Disaster Artist. Starring which is about Frank, which the is making about the of this making, movie. It's about the making of the movie. And it's really, really good. And, and doesn't James Franco play Tommy in the film? He does. Is it Franco? He's, yeah. He's really great. Um, yes, this so maybe, movie was so bad. They made a movie about the making of this movie. Oh, so maybe, maybe not we, a documentary, a movie. Maybe we pair it up. Maybe we we take we watch the room and see how awful it is. Then we watch the disaster artist and see like get get that good taste in the mouth at that point. So we'll, we'll call it that. We'll call it the sweet episode. Multiple rooms. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just select. <laughs> just just select the room if you're going to watch along with us the room and the not room. and not room. room a vastly superior movie to my understanding a vastly superior movie but two very different movies <laughs> so <laughs> well well folks there you have it we are headed for pure cinematic fool's gold coming up here in our in our next episode but we are always happy to have you join us for these conversations thank you for listening to us talk on about dinosaurs with jurassic park Please make sure you follow us on all of our socials. We would love to talk with you. Let us know what you think about some of these films. And especially, I'd love to hear your takes on The Room because it's coming. And until next time, please make sure you enjoy looking at old movies with new eyes.